As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Doug Allen, how are you doing? Doing very well, thank you, Liam. It's good to be back in the old home too. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Dunfermline. Yep. I just want to say thank you for donating your time because I know you're probably one of the busiest men in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been waiting long enough for it. I can't remember when you first made contact, mm. but we missed each other the last time. Um, so it's nice to be sitting down here. Yep. And yes, I am busy, but... You know, this is a moment of sanity. You're currently on tour. Yes, I'm doing a tour. Every year I try to do a, a tour either in England or Northern I- or, or Ireland or Scotland. So Ireland we, we, is out of the question because all the theatres are closed. And so it was time to do a Scottish one. So we've got 11, 11 venues up in Scotland. Yeah. They do range from Hoyk in the south... Yeah. to Shetland in the north, <laughs> Stornoway in the west and Aberdeen to the east. So yeah. I've kind of quartered the country and in between there's also Oban, Edinburgh, Alapool, Orkney, you know, a few places yeah. like that. But anyway, it's just going well, it's going well. Yeah, and it's called It's a Wrap. It's called It's a Wrap, aye. Ah. Now, now, people said, is that because you're stopping? Because normally we say it's a wrap, that's yeah. the end of filming. Um, no, not really. I, I felt that it was a wrap because... A bit of a different phase, I suppose, in my life. You know, I've been wildlife filming for the last 35 to 40. Um, I might as well come out with it now and say I turned 70 this year. I know, it doesn't look it, it doesn't feel it. But I just sort of, you know, for the last few years I've been moving away and perhaps from pure wildlife films into looking to make films or talk or, or do programs about environmental issues, put it that way, including climate change, and certainly I, I wind a climate change message into, into all the talks that I give. And increasingly, I am talking a lot. I mean, I talk to, you know, everybody from primary schools, secondary schools, all the way up to rotary clubs, corporate gigs, what have you. Mm. And, and it's nice to feel as though you're, you're wrapping a meaningful message round about adventurous stories. But at the same time, I know that having been in the polls personally so much, you definitely, it, it gives you 
higher street cred when you start talking about climate change because you've seen it for yourself. Mm. So you'll be a very popular man at the minute with COP26 going on. Yeah, COP26 is certainly you'll focus the mind on Glasgow and, and I have had a few interviews, uh, I think specifically because I'm from Scotland. Hopefully, hopefully COP will you know, live up to all its promises because there's an awful lot of promises being made, but what we need to do is see as hard action coming out of them. Mm. But I'm quietly optimistic. I mean, well, you know, you have to be a wee bit optimistic. Um, there's a huge big job to get done, but I think if everyone did start putting their shoulder to the wheel and doing what they're promising to do, then it would make an awful big, make a huge difference, a totally necessary difference. But we need, we need, instead of them talking about 2030, we need them talking about 2022, 2023, and not, not just what we might do, but tell us what you're going to do, and then we'll hold your feet to the fire to mm. make sure you come up with it. Do you think the secret to these things is a... Uh lowering your expectations. I mean, it is a big complicated issue. Mm. Greta Thunberg and all the rest, you know, give us, you know, no more blah, blah, blah. But we don't, we live in democracies and we live in, in places that big decisions start with talking. The challenge that COP has is that the talking just seems to go on for far too long. We know what we need to do. We know what's causing the problems. We know what we need to do. And we just start needing to do it. And... COVID in the last year was what an example of what you can do when the threat is perceived as close up now and happening. How much money can you pull out? 420 billion, you know, the UK government spent to come to terms with COVID. And what they're throwing at climate change over the next few years is just a tiny fraction of that. Mm. And, but COVID um, is, is a small, a fairly small concern, to be honest, compared to what climate will be doing in 10 years' time. Yeah. So we should be spending a lot and we should be subsidising more things and we should be making them more easy for the public to do the right things. You've been in Aberdeen last night and you're away to open, open tomorrow. Aberdeen tonight, open tomorrow. And then, um, yeah, it's bit, I like talking to people. I must admit, sometimes it can, can be quite a brutal schedule. And it's also an odd schedule because everything shifts towards the evening. If a show kicks off at half past seven, then I'm usually at the theatre two hours beforehand to just to do a, a tech check with the people to get the sound levels right, make sure the picture's on the screen get the lighting right on me, etc. And then, of course, I'm selling copies of my book when the doors open, which might be quarter to seven. So I'll sell until half past. Then we have an interval, more selling, and then around at the end, people want to stay and talk. That's fine by me. So it's like a full-on day, but it doesn't start until Aye. half past five in the afternoon. Mm. And, of course, you might have a couple of hours of driving in front of that. But I do like talking to people, and I, and I quite like when schools recognise that I'm coming somewhere and they ask me to do something. So tomorrow, yes, I'm going to open, but I'm also 
going to a school, open high school at uh, two o'clock because there's a bunch of a, a group of very keen photographers there and um, the, they asked me if I could go and talk to them for an hour about photography generally. So I'm quite happy to do that. I just leave Dunfermline a little bit sooner and put them in before I do the show mm. in the afternoon. That's where I first came across you, Doug. You were doing a talk at Dunfermline High School. This was about maybe three and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was. I, I did a few talks at the high school. I was very honoured to. They asked me to do the prizes, um, the very last prize giving in the old high school. And uh, what I really wanted, ideally, would have been to be up there on stage and give the last prize, and then about ten seconds later, a giant wrecking ball <laughs> to come through the wall and you know take everybody out. No, that was great because I, I went to the old high school, but then I've also gone to the new one, mm. and that is a fantastic facility mm. for giving talks. I mean, really high quality projection, nicely raked seats, mm. things like that. So I've done a talk um, for the Royal Scottish Geographic. Society, um, the Ardenfermline branch uses the high school, so I've been there, and it's 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 a sort of class, it's a sort of school that you know the youngsters in Dunfermline deserve. It was difficult in the old school to have a pride in the school because there was still carvings in the desk that I remember were there when I was there. Um, but when you go into a new place and it's properly you know well designed and it's bright and airy and cheerful, then. It's you know, people take a pride in that and, and they look after it, and uh, it had a really good positive vibe. High mm. school. I worked with young people that sometimes present with behaviour issues. I remember going into the talk, and it was my job to make sure these kids weren't disruptive. And I just remember as soon as you started talking and you had the images up on the on the screen, it was silent. Eh? And these kids were just suddenly engaged. Do you find it easy to engage kids, young people? Well, I often say, you know, for me, who has been fortunate to work not just on top, but underwater with some of the most exciting animals in the world, I mean, if I can't hold an audience engaged for half an hour, then who can? Or if I can't, then it's a sad reflection on me. But I do think as well that I have got a knack maybe for, for winding in facts about science or what have you. You just wind them effortlessly into your show and people remember them because they don't feel as though they're being f forced down their throats or anything mm. like that. You know, kind of, I enjoy being excited and getting kids excited and, and finding out what interests them and then moving my talk into into a way that is is relevant to them and and never leaving it like it's something unachievable for them they nice to see you know them getting the buzz hmm. and and encouraging them to do whatever they want at whatever level they want but stay interested in it stay excited in it and that's that's a tricky thing i think maybe it's changing now but it it you it there was a time when it seemed like it was very uncool to be excited you know, whereas I think you've got to let that passion come out at yeah. times and do daft things. Yeah. And maybe to some extent, you know, that, that's been what's come about. We seem to live in, in a more careful culture now than we used to. I mean, just to take an infernal example, you know, I took a walk around the Glen the other day 
And I remember I could see all these paths that we used to go up and go off the paths and, you know, make our way along the bottom of the Abbey ruins, which I'm told now is too unsafe, that path. <laughs> and we used to explore everywhere in that glen, but way off the paths, you know, beating our way through the rhododendron bushes and that kind of thing. And I think there's a kind of physicality about growing up that now doesn't seem to be quite so prevalent. Um, you know, I'm not saying that... that that what uh, what the youngsters have to do now is highly stimulating, etc. But it's stimulating in a different way, and there's often a lot of don'ts rather than do's incorporated mm. in the the sort of things that they pick up. Which moves us beautifully. <laughs> You're born in 1951. That's right. 70 years old this year. Yeah, 17th of July 1951. That's mm. when I was born. You were talking about young people now and how their lives differed from your <laughs> your own childhood. How was your childhood back then? I mean, as, as far as I remember, my father was a photographer. He used to he used to own a photographic shop in in Chalmers Street. But also, he was a freelance camera person. So he was a he was a journalist. So he was on news stories and things like that. And then later on, he moved into the shooting with a movie. And he used to shoot for what's called Scott Sport, which was the equivalent of Match of the Day back in those days, but very much simpler sort of coverage. I don't remember him. You know, suddenly being called away to, 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 to some breaking story. So there was always this kind of element in the background of, of uncertainty and, and a bit of excitement about what was going on with his life. And then the other big influence on in my life was my uncle John. He was a, a very good gymnast. He was a Scottish champion, Scottish gymnastic champion for 10 years running uh, through the, the mid 50s, through to the mid 60s. John got us very keen on gymnastics. So right away from the start, there was a kind of, it was just, you got mixed up with lots of sport, any kind of sport, not just the football, but gymnastics, swimming, etc. Et and it was, it was a, we just did, I mean, I remember, I remember my grandfather used to drive a lorry, he used to drive a truck for the co-op. My brother and I, the twin brother, Ron and I were twin brothers, we must have been about six at the time, and it was the summer holidays, and he came down with his truck down to John Street, because we lived down there, and he said, come on boys, I'll take you up to the sand pit. The sand pit was halfway between here and Perth at Glenfarg, and he said... You can ride in the back of the lorry. So literally, this is a lorry with a separate cab. But he helped us up into the back. And we sat in the back of this truck. I mean, and remember when we got to the top of the new road, there used to be a policeman directing the traffic there. And Grandpa, when we got off, he said, now you keep down, keep, you know, tuck yourself down, because I don't want the policeman at the top of the new road seeing you sitting in the back of the cab, because he, you know, that's against the law. So just sit there. So sure, you know, we sat down while we, as we drove up to the, Policeman. But as we drove past and drove along Eastport, where we were going, both of us popped up and waved back the place <laughs> And he just uh, kept on directing the traffic and waved back at us. So it was it was a very you know physical rough and tumble kind of life. Obviously, no computer games, nothing like that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But I think it gave you a, a kind of I don't know. There was a physicality, like I say, to it, an outdoorness and a kind of you know willing to do things that were. Down the Glen, we were always running away from the parkies. The parkies were these, mm-hmm. you know, fogies who go around and they make sure you kept on the path. And didn't they? we were always getting hoiked. You know, we'd go into the bushes in the park. We'd go, hey, get rid of those bushes. we go in the other direction. So I wasn't, um, you know, I agree. But then later on, I was, 
you've all, my first big passion was really diving um, and the underwater things and I got into that because I remember reading when I was about 10 years old I read Jacques Cousteau's Silent World which came out in 1957 or something the old man had a copy dad had a copy and I read it and just got very excited about the undersea world I got the chance to do a wee bit of snorkeling um, in, UK, in, in the Scottish River and then we were lucky to go on holiday to the Mediterranean um, with the, when the Sort of cheapest package holidays came along. So I got a very, got to be a very experienced snorkeler between the age of 11 and 15. And then undersea adventure was a big thing, you know, because we were, there was two big frontiers at that time. Folk were going out in space and heading for the moon, but people were also going underwater. It's interesting to think, you know, that the first man on the moon was 69, but it was 1960 when Two men in a submarine went down to the deepest part of the world's oceans, down at 37,000 feet, about 12,000 metres, down underneath underneath the sea. They did that in 1960, the moon in 69. They've never been back to the moon, and it was only five years, five years ago, that the third person went down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench Mariana in the ocean. So I was, you know, growing up, in my teen years, which was kind of formative, that was, you know, the... the the marine, the, the seas were a big frontier then, mm. and that took me to Stirling University, and you know that was another sort of start. Mm. So in a way, I just bolted things on to what I enjoyed. What was Dunfermline like back then? Well, some of it was exactly the same. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it had um, it had a bit more buzz and vibe about it. I think in a way, you know, the dockyard was revving, and there was more things actually going on in Dunfermline. Um, it was very different, uh, obviously, traffic-wise. I remember when I got old enough to drive a car, and that was be seventeen. There used to be an unofficial circuit that you'd try and get around as much as you could, and it basically took you across the Grand Bridge. And then I think you went down Chalmers Street at that point and, and took you way down bottom of town, you know, down near the maternity hospital things and then back up again. In the whole of that, there was only one set of traffic lights. So you stood a good, you know, it wasn't, you know, the quickest speed roundabout that wasn't determined by how many red lights you met. <laughs> it was how daft you were willing to be the rest of the time. Well, you can imagine how many traffic lights there are now. Mm. You know, but there was only one, and that was at the end of the end of the Glen Bridge, going right. down to Chalmers Street. Right. So if you started from there, you could get a green light, and that was you all the way. Pedal to the metal. <laughs> down the court. <laughs> yes, enough. Enough said about that. That was a little bit older, but um, no, I. I mean. Um, yeah, Dunfermline was. It, it's a. It hasn't. You know, the fact that it hasn't changed much might be sort of to its advantage in a way. It's certainly, you know, around about the Glen, the Abbey, and that sort of area, it's much lovelier there and more interesting than I ever realised it was at the time. Yeah. Yep. You know, I think it is a place that you, you maybe have to come back to. And they've done a hell of a lot with the Glen. I mean, the Glen's really impressive now. They've got some, all the paths seem to be cleaned up. And there's paths there that I never recognised, you know, that there were. A lot of history here, eh? The old capital of Scotland. Yeah, that's right, the old capital of Scotland. And Robert the Bruce, his body is in Dunfermline Abbey. Mm-hmm. A lot of history linked to Dunfermline, eh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that famous poem, isn't it? The king sits in Dunfermline, too, mm. drinking the blood red wine. Aye, it's, um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of it. Um, in fact, you know, the whole sort of combination of the, the history here and then the oldness down at Kouris and then the, the, mm. the, um, the fishing trail, so to speak, out through Anstra, their mm. weems, Pinweem and all that. You know, it's a really, it's a bonny bit of Fife. There's not mm. at all. And Fife is one of these sort of underrated counties in a way. I mean, it's not, it's not the Highlands for sure, but it's not the borders, and maybe it kind of sits in the shadow of Glasgow a little bit, mm-hmm. Edinburgh rather, a little yeah. bit, but it's certainly got an identity of its own, you know, between the Forth and the Tay, mm-hmm. um, and it's got, it's got some, some underrated attractions, let's put it that way. Yeah. As a man who's travelled the world, seen many, many places, where is home? That's interesting. You know, it's funny. I This is going to sound weird, but I hardly feel like I've got a home um, in the sense of I can tell when I go to someone's house that they've lived in for, you know, 20, 25 years and the kids have grown up and stuff like that. There's all kinds of things around that are proof of all that's going on in that house. And... It's funny, I've never lived in any one house, you know, long enough to really feel like I've made it a base. Um, you know, the longest I've lived in one place, well, you know, is in Bristol. Um, I've been, I moved into Bristol in 1995, uh, having moved down to Bristol and lived on the outskirts seven years before that when I began sort of filming seriously. But before that, the longest place that I'd lived in any one time was actually in the Antarctic. <laughs> two and a half <laughs> on years. On an Antarctic research station, which was two and a half years, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. But I haven't, it's a combination of the, the, the vagrant way that I work, freelance mm-hmm. life filming involves a lot of travelling, and you may be in one place for a few months, but that's that's quite a long time. Most of the time, in an average year, you might do maybe six or seven shoots of about, maybe a bit more than that, actually, seven or eight shoots, let's say, of somewhere between two weeks and a month. But those are different countries, and you're going sometimes with different crew, meeting different people every time, so you never really feel attached to anywhere. And this isn't, again, maybe folk will, will think that I'm betraying the old country. <laughs> I, I bought a house 20 years ago over on the west coast of Ireland. And I bought it over there because I have a very good friend of mine, Pete Vine, whom I've known since the time I went to the Red Sea. So we're talking about 45 years ago in 1973, I met Pete. And Pete was married to an Irish Woman, got an Irish girl, and he had a, he had a house out in Ireland. It was, it was his base, and I used to go out there and stay with Pete. And it's like a little bit of Scotland, but transported over there. In fact, the whole west coast of Ireland is like a mini version of Scotland, where the, the hills are about two or three hundred meters lower. What have you? Anyway, I really, I just so I just thought, you know, this would be a nice place to get. Cottage and think about spending more time over here, people, my good friend, and various other things. So, the closest I have to probably to a spiritual home or a place that I feel that my soul is at rest is to go over and stay in Ireland. In 1973, you get a degree in marine biology at Stirling University. In 1976, I've got here is your first trip 
to the Antarctic. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was at university, I mean, I really enjoyed science and I enjoyed learning about science. And I, the, the late 60s, early 70s was a really interesting time because it was when this scientific study called ecology came along. Yeah. So we stopped looking, biologists stopped looking at individual animals and how they work. They looked at whole systems. And one of the big systems is obviously, you know, the sea, how, you know, the animals that interact and things. Mm. And it was all about getting this bigger picture of the world as a, as a living organism, so mm -hmm. to speak. It was a very exciting time to be in there. So I went there and I was really you know, inspired by that sort of new feeling, but I was already into diving and so I was interested in things marine. Um, and I was quite surprised how many of the scientists that I met who are marine scientists, you know, didn't dive. They'd never even stuck their head in the water. And I wondered, how can you study that, you know, without going into the environment? So I, I wanted, but also I'd, <laughs> I began to recognize that what turned me on was being out in the field, so to speak, actually, you know, there in front of the animals or there underwater, what have you, collecting the data, collecting the samples. Back in the laboratory, conducting experiments or writing up the results, that was not so exciting. So I thought, you know, maybe because I can dive really well, then I can become a sort of scientific marine biology assistant rather than a scientist. I'm not interested mm -hmm. in, in the glory, so to speak, or the, the, the prowess of actually being a scientist. I'll, I'll just be an assistant. I, I left, when I left university, I started looking for, instead of looking for PhDs where you could do more research, I started looking for chances to go and dive. So I, I went to the Red Sea um, on a couple of trips with a bunch of biologists from Cambridge and I also read in a diving magazine about uh, how divers were employed in the Antarctic to work at the British Antarctic Survey bases because there was an article in one of the dive magazines by someone who had done that job. So I wrote to the British Antarctic Survey and they said, yes, we do use divers. And so I applied for that job. Um, and interestingly, I didn't get it first time. I failed the interview. I've only had one interview and I failed it. I don't know why. I think... I think it was because I went in expecting to be offered a one and a half year contract, but what they were really wanting people to do was a two and a half year contract. They found someone better, or whom they thought was better. Uh, so I remember there was two letters arrived. I was working in Jersey at the time, working, I was running a dive training centre. And there was two letters arrived. One was from the British Antarctic Survey saying, sorry, you know, we're not offering a job this time. The other one was from the Red Sea uh, contacts who said, we're looking for someone to come out here for another few months to finish off some work. So that's fine. I went out to the Red Sea. And then I'd been there about four months in the Red Sea. And there was um, a letter, telegram, arrived from the British Antarctic Survey saying, unexpected vacancy on one of our bases, would you still like to go to the Antarctic? So from the Red Sea, I said yes, and about two weeks later, I was on a ship heading, you know, going yeah. from the bottom of South America out towards, towards this base. And furthermore, when I arrived on Signe, that was the name of our base, we arrived in the afternoon, I got taken ashore um, with some cargo and mail, met the outcoming diving officer, and the next morning the ship left, and we didn't see any other ship for 10 months. So that year went well, and then I, and then my contract, the end of the contract came up for a year and a half. So I decided to do a bit of travelling in South America, 
And when I got back to UK, I decided to reapply to come down again. So came down for a second time. But this time, before I came down, I worked as a commercial diver in Jersey just to get some money so that I could get some better camera equipment to go down. So I went down second time. Again, mm -hmm. supposed to be for a year and a half. But that was, that ended up just, well, what happened was you did a summer and then a winter and then a summer and you left at the end of the summer. Well, halfway through that second summer, there were two ships that the British Antarctic Survey had. They had a big one, which was an icebreaker and used to move people around the bases. And they had a smaller one that was just for research. Well, the big one hit a rock in the middle of summer. It hit a rock in the Antarctic and was lucky not to sink. And it had to go north for repairs. It went to Montevideo and then limped back to UK, which just left the wee ship to do things. So the wee ship was supposed to come round in, in late March, early April, bring in my replacement and the replacement for six other people, and then everybody go north. Well, by the time she came to try to get into her place, um, unseasonally heavy pack ice had arrived, and she basically couldn't get closer than about 150 miles to the north. So she bashed around on the edge of the pack ice for about a week, temperatures about minus 20, fresh ice forming, etc. And the decision was made that she's not going to get in this year. So the seven of you who thought you were coming home, Seems bye, left. bye, I'll have, to stay, <laughs> I'll have to stay for another winter. And I mean, it's not, it, wasn't a, it wasn't that much of a problem. All the bases have got you know, spare food just for exactly that kind of emergency. Um, but it meant I got an extra winter in the Antarctic, which was good fun. And it, the, the, the stroke of fate about it all was that it was after that second winter, halfway through the next summer, that was when I met David Attenborough. What was appealing to you about going to the Antarctic? I don't know. I mean, I, well, I was I was excited to go down there, but I was also very, you know, I was just going to take things as they were. Uh, it didn't occur to me that it was going to be as formative a period, I think, as it was. But I found it really easy because at that time when I went down, I didn't have any girlfriends or anything back at home. It was a pretty remote existence. It was in the days where you're way, way before emails and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only personal communication that we had was that all the communication from bases was by telegrams. So on a personal level, you were allowed 100 words a month to send out to one contact back in UK, and they could send you 100 words a month. And that was the only contact we had. If you were really desperate, something important, you could ring up a, a radio telephone call. But that was long time to set up and usually pretty lousy reception. So that was how the communication was. So it was very cut out, cut off, so to speak. And there were only, that first winter that I spent, there was only 15 other people on base. And you basically had your scientists, who were the whole raison d'etre, the whole reason for the, for the base being there. And then you had support staff. And I was what you call support staff. So we had an, an electrician, we had a diesel mechanic who looked after the, the three power plants that used to give us 24-hour electricity. 
We had a radio engineer who kept the skeds going. We had a builder who was responsible for general maintenance, a cook. I think I was there. We didn't have a doctor. wasn't a doctor. Um, the, the chippy, the carpenter, he was actually did a sort of paramedic course before he came down. Uh, so we used to joke that, well, if everything went the wrong way around, at least you'd have a good coffin to get the thing back in, because Nick was a good chippy. I don't want to sound like an old funny dirty now, but when you go to the Antarctic now, virtually every base is, it's kind of like living in a better quality Best Western Inn or, or a Holiday Inn or something like that. They're kind of standardised because of all the you know, non-flammable surfaces, but also because they get shipped down, you know, pre-made. They get shipped down, you know, so you put them up really quickly. Whereas the base that I was on had kind of evolved over the years, and, and there was, you know, some very old um, huts on base that had been lovingly made back in 1948, 1950, this kind of thing, and they were still in good use. So the base had a lot of character back in those days. I don't know, like I say, I just adapted to it, and because of my state of mind, in the sense of going in without any preconceptions and not having any deep relationships, you know, with anyone back home. You could just sink into the Antarctic. Mm. And so, you know, it just suited me down to the ground. And I would I would say that that's true even now, that if you, if you get the chance to go to the Antarctic for 18 months, you know, um, over winter, you take it because it will be unlike anything that you've done before and it will be unlike anything that you do in the future and it gives you just a different perspective on so many things. I'm going to go to my first feature on the podcast for this mm-hmm. episode. I tried to think of a name for it. I tried to think of something really creative and I couldn't come up with anything that, that rhymed with Doug. Snappy thing. Aye. So uh, this feature is just called Ask Doug. Ask Doug. First one is Andy Smith, who saw your photo for It's a Rap. Mm-hmm. The promotional photo. I'll come to his question in a minute. What What are you wearing on your bottom half there? What <laughs> What is that made of? That's what I want to know. Well, that is polar bear trousers. Right, okay. No, they are polar bear trousers and they were given to me uh, by an Inuit friend on that shoot. And it's no exaggeration to say that they turned what would have been several extremely cold, windy, miserable days into quite comfortable yeah. Because the Inuit, the Inuit have a technology all of their own, and that technology is round about using what materials they've got, and they don't have wood and fabrics and stuff like that. Animals are at the centre of their technology, and at the centre of the technology is clothing. Clothing is survival for an Inuit. He had this pair of polar bear trousers, which you, you, you wore another set of something else underneath, sealskin underneath for extra warmth. But the polar bear fur sort of fluffs up and it's really very, very windproof and very, very warm. In fact, it's, it's only perfect for standing around a lot. You would never wear polar bear trousers for walking a lot. You wear something else because what you don't want to do is sweat. But those are polar bear trousers and they were, I don't know, 
There they do have a they have a quota for hunting polar bears. You know, every community is allowed to take so many. And um, the guys do go out hunting them, mostly for the fur, because the meat is not that great for human consumption. Uh, you can feed little bits of it to, to dogs, but not too much. But it's it's very rich in vitamin A, I think. Well, Andy's question was, what do you wear under that? <laughs> so I think you've answered okay. that. <laughs> what do you wear under your uh, polar bear outfit? A good answer, you know, what is worn under the kilt? Nothing, <laughs> nothing it's all in perfect working order, you know. Well, again, it depends just, you know, on what you're doing, but... There might be a you can you can get different grades of sort of sealskin trousers from you know really beefy ones that would do just that and nothing else. Um, but you just do lighter ones as well. And so I think I probably had some lightweight sealskin stuff underneath. I mean I'm not afraid of you know of of learning from the Inuit. It's interesting when you think about it. You know there's a great big push through the sort of 1830 to 1850 or so to find this fabled Northwest Passage, the passage that would basically link the Atlantic to the Pacific, um, you know, and save you going all the way around through South America. And there were a lot of naval British naval expeditions tried to find the passage. Um, and they went up there and people died by the score of scurvy and frostbite and everything else. And it seems like the British Navy in particular never asked themselves, we're here with our men dying right, left and centre. And actually, there's these people that we meet occasionally on shore, they come to the boat and they don't have any guns, they don't have the really simplistic native people, but they seem to be quite comfortable. Is there not something we can learn from these people mm-hmm. that, that would save off all this misery? Um, and one of the things they could have learned was, was clothing. Um, and the Inuit, it's fascinating. I knew an old woman called Kapik, who was sort of chief seamstress at one point in this little village that I knew quite well. And she was an amazing maker of fur. She knew how to make a pair of boots. You wanted a certain seal or maybe a walrus as a sole and then something else for the uppers and then maybe stitched onto the top something else to come over your thighs. And not just the specific animal, but you had to hunt the animal at a specific time of year when the fur was the best for what condition it made. And you could go into Capic and, and I remember she made me a pair of, of um, boots. And she just looked at me and said, Do you, is this what you want? And when are you going out? You know, because it would make a difference if she was making summer boots. Or, mm. And I said, well, I'm going out soon. They said, okay, come back in a couple of days. And these things just fitted like, like a glove, but not too tight. You don't want them too tight because then you restrict the circulation, but you don't want them too big, you know. And you just wore a pair of thin socks underneath, and they were the lightest, warmest, loveliest things. You could walk around in snow up over your ankles, which you know, is normally pretty cold, but you walk around in those things, and they were lovely. So underneath the polar bear trousers, it kind of depended what sort of day it was and what you were doing, but normal pair of UK underpants, <laughs> and, then, and, and, then, and then maybe a thin pair of, of um, your own trousers, or maybe a bit of sealskin or something underneath. <laughs> Sandy Henderson asks, do you have any advice for freelancers who have taken the leap and are finding it difficult? It is difficult. It is difficult. It's harder than ever now to make a living just out of wildlife photography. 
And the reason is that your biggest rivals are not other fellow professionals. They're people who are well enough off or keen enough to go on lots of wildlife cruises or trips every year, but also they buy the best equipment and they, more by luck than by judgment, get a lot of good shots and they put it on Facebook and magazines and people who might pay for these pictures find those pictures and get the use of them for nothing. And that sort of freezes out the professional. My advice to you is keep taking lots of shots, um, but write your own articles round about them because magazines still do pay for articles that are well written with a selection of pictures that are relevant to the to the article. Try and get your pictures in with an agency. There are still lots of agencies that specialise in, in wildlife, natural environments. And basically these these agencies, if they take your picture, they will sell their, you will sell your picture on your behalf. They'll never sell the picture, all the picture. It's always going to be your copyright, but they will sell for a fee the rights to use that picture. So you know that's what I that's would be my advice if you want to to turn yourself you know fully professional. But it, it's not easy. It used to be that you took the picture and that was it. That was fine. But now it's about marketing yourself as well. So you could look at doing talks round about your your shows, talking about them. Um, that way you'll get noticed and you may. Uh, you may get the chance to to go on a cruise with uh, you know as a photographer or as a lecturer talking about your photography to the people on the cruise. Um, that's something that I do a little bit of. Um, but I get I got I got my start by writing uh, articles round about my round about my photographs, um, and I think that's still a possibility. And then you know I got pictures in with agencies, but I did have the big advantage of working somewhere that was comparatively difficult to access, mm. i.e. the Antarctic. Yeah. Whereas now, so many people go so many places. But on the other hand, you know, if you can look at pictures in a magazine, what have you, and think I can do better than that, then you will be successful. Sandy also asks, what's the one thing we can do right now to make an impact on climate change? Stop buying so much stuff. That is my message to people. A lot of your stuff will be made in China. Not necessarily all of it, but wherever it gets made, there's quite likely a lot of fossil fuels with the CO2 emissions that have been burned to produce the energy to make what you want. Um, whether that's a way back at the chain where you actually hold, you know, get the metal out of the ground or whatever. But basically there's a lot of energy goes into making stuff and then bringing the stuff to your door. If you could ask yourself, do I need this stuff in the first place? Or do I need it new? Can I buy it second hand? You know, just as much. If you can, if you ask yourself those two things and buy less stuff, that would make a difference. And it will also force force the economics of our world to go in a different direction. As soon as people stop buying stuff, governments start going mad because quite rightly, you know, that's where their money comes from. Their money comes from you and I working and them taking a wee bit out of it in tax. And then a lot of it comes from the stuff that you and I buy, which comes often with 20% tax on it on top anyway, VAT. So if everyone to stop buying stuff and just go into second hand, which isn't VAT, then there would be huge holes in the treasury. But that 
it would be a, that wouldn't be a bad thing because they would have to think in different ways. So I think that that if we were all to think about do I really need it, then then there would be an immediate drop in emissions, and it might also do us all it might do us our wallets good because when you think about how most people get to the end of the month and they haven't got much left. When you look back over the month and ask yourself, how much did I get that I actually don't need? Or how much did I waste, you know, in food? I mean, there's an enormous amount of food goes to waste. And if you could cut down on those things, then it would be easier on your wallet and it would be better for the planet. And it's this one-use dispose of society that, that's causing a lot of environmental issues around, you know, around the place. <laughs> Astog. Ronnie Mackey has Will COP26 save the Arctic slash Antarctic? Whoa, that's a tough one, Ronnie. No matter, we are living in a world that is changing. It is going to change, no matter what COP does. It's a matter of it whether it changes so much and so badly that it becomes almost unlivable. And that is a fact. If you start listening to someone, they start talking about adapting to a three degrees centigrade rise in temperature, then they don't know their biology. Because if the world were to increase in temperature by three, the natural world as we know it will cease to exist. And we still depend on the natural world for a lot, a lot of things, you know, our foodstuffs. But all of that will change. So we have to try to keep it as little as we can. 1.5 alive, only just. It's in the critical care ward of the hospital. And if we let it get out of reach, then we better get the priest by the bedside, so to speak. We could still turn around the mighty ship, but it's going to be a big job and it's going to need a change of attitude and, and living in a way, even in the next 10 years, which is going to be very, very, very different from how it is now. It's very dangerous and misleading, really, to talk about China being such a big polluter and UK reducing its emissions by 44%. When when you think that, that a significant part of China's emissions are coming out simply making stuff for us. So you really want to, you know, in an ideal world, you, would, you wouldn't say China is making all those emissions and that's it. You would say China's making this amount for her own consumption, but she's also emitting this lot for what America wants, this lot for what UK wants. It's the workshop of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's, you know, it's, that's why it is so much emissions. But what we should be doing is we should be, you know, although China's developing massively, we should be looking at, you know, contributing significant amounts of money to, to, to make it easier for China or recognizing the true value of the goods and, and, and making it that, that China produces all this stuff, but in a, with, with fewer fossil fuels and more renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera. But that's going to be tough because China doesn't have the same uh, renewable sources of energy as other parts of the world do. Um, especially, I mean, if we're looking at renewables, it's got to be solar or nuclear or, or hydro or, or uh, wind. Um, and nuclear is the only one really that, that we can, that will, is capable of producing us the amount of energy that we need. The other ones are, are significant, but 
They've got drawbacks. Nuclear is, is the best option for 24-7, large amounts of power. And it's interesting, you know, we're talking about putting little, you know, small nuclear power plants near major cities. The Russians have got several icebreakers up along their northern coast, which are basically floating nuclear power stations. Mm. And they, they let these things sit in the ice through the winter and they supply power to the communities, to the towns and now cities that the Russians are developing up there. One more for Ronnie. What's your opinion on the politicians' climate change policies? Or just your opinion on politicians and what they're doing about it? Can I just go, let me just, Ron asked originally about the Arctic. Yeah. Um, well, the thing is, yes, the poles, are, the poles are warming comparatively more than almost any other place on the planet. The Arctic, the Arctic is evolving into a different Arctic. The ice distribution is different up there. There is less ice. There's going to be more commercial exploitation. Uh, there are eyes on a, on a cross-polar trade route, which is going to bring goods from China to Europe and vice versa. There's a lot of things happening up in the Arctic. Um, it is a changing environment, and... I don't know, I don't know when it will stop changing because one bad thing produces another. For example, you know, you get warmer summers, so you get more melts, so you get bigger, blacker areas on the land, which would normally be white because they're covered with snow. But because they're black, they absorb more heat, so they absorb more heat, so they freeze later in the summer. Um, you know, it's slower to, to refreeze in the autumn. Um, so that means it gets less snow on it through the winter, so it melts earlier in the spring. So you get this positive running around feedback. Um, so that's, you know, a problem. Greenland is melting, and so is the Antarctic is melting, and that is adding volume to the sea. And that's where the big scary bit about um, sea level change is going to come from. Sea level rises because of two reasons. You have to either add extra water to it, and that extra water can come off Greenland or the Antarctic in the form of, in the form of meltwater, and sea level rises simply because water gets hot. When you, when you heat water, it expands. So a lot of the, a lot of the sea level rise we've seen in the last 50 or 60 years comes down to not extensive melting of the glaciers and things, but more thermal expansion of the oceans. But what we'll get in the future is thermal expansion of the oceans plus added to by extra water coming off the ice caps. So what's happening in the poles is, is critically important. As far as COP is concerned, well, it's going in the right direction. And as someone pointed out, you know, it's only, you know, at least people here, it's an improvement on the last one. And as much as people have arrived at this COP with definite plans, definite targets, but there's still a, a lack of concrete action. Um, and that's what we need. That's what we need. And already... Sadly, people come to COP with their sort of ideas already fixed. And we knew before people came to this one that the promises that people were making were not going to be sufficient to keep 1.5 alive. And now we're halfway through it. I've just read there's another halfway report on it. Um, the pledges that the countries have made is still not enough to really bring it under control. So... Good though it is, we just need to go further. And I would like to see lots more money poured into it. You know, this country produced £420 billion in 18 months to handle COVID. Is, is it so unreasonable to ask them to 
come up with half of that every year for the next 10 years to deal with an even bigger threat of climate change? I don't think it is. That's the end of Ask Doug. Well, that was very pleasant. I don't uh, mind being asked. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. You mentioned there about meeting David Attenborough, which was during one of your trips in Antarctic. Yeah. How, well, did, how does that come about? In 1978, I went down for what was supposed to be 18 months, but then we got stuck. So instead of coming home in March of 1980, I got stuck for an extra year. So halfway through the following summer, it was in February, I think, um, of 1981, we had a, a radio call from HMS Endurance, which was our Navy ship. And we had a radio call from them saying, got a BBC crew on board, they would like to visit your base for a couple of days to do some filming. And it turned out there was David Attenborough, and he was pretty well known, you know, even back then. And what he was filming for was his second series, his first big blockbuster was Life on Earth. And this was going to be one called Living Planet. And him and a very small film crew had managed to persuade the Navy to take them down on HMS Endurance. And they were just grabbing what they could, you know, wherever the ship was spending a few days. So they asked if they could come on board, come, come ashore and stay on our base because that was handier than flying them on and off in Jurons. So we said, yeah, sure, fine. So there was David, there was a producer called Ned, a cameraman called Hugh, and a sound recordist called Dickie. And they came ashore and it had been sort of decided that I would be the best person to take them around to wherever they wanted to go because I, you know, you couldn't just let them wander off because there was bits of the thing were unsafe. But also I could drive the boat round to different bits of the island and put them off in the sky. So yeah, they were only there for a couple of days, but I just was with them and I was watching them and I was seeing how much good fun they had and I was talking to them and they would say, where are you going next? And I think they said, oh, we're going to Galapagos next. And I thought, oh. So it just began to, to me, I began to see that here was a job that just involved so much of what I knew I enjoyed doing. And also, I'll admit, there was, a, there was a sort of lot of glamour to it as well. Because when David came in, a lot of people knew who he was. And they were oh, David, he's great for that. Um, and I, you know, maybe I could get a bit of that. I <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I, 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 I just started gently talking to them. How's the business work? And they told me, oh, it's mostly freelancers and things. But I do remember... It was either David or Ned, either David or the producer Ned, who said to me when we were talking about how to get into it. Um, and the, the basic gist was, you know, what's interesting about you, Doug, is if I want to go to Africa, there's a dozen people that I can phone up and ask them about elephants mating, where do I go, when do I go, or chimpanzees fighting, or, you know, I, there's lots of knowledge about about Africa. Well, what he said was, if I ever wanted to come back to Antarctica, I'd have to come to you. And, and I thought, what, you mean if there was anyone else, you'd rather go to them? But that was what effect he was saying. He was saying that, that he would come to me because I was the first and only person he knew that seemed to know enough about Antarctica, how to manage in the cold, obviously, an eye for a photograph, but also the intricacies of diving underwater, a lot of the animals on top, etc., etc., and, and had this long-term experience of, of looking after yourself in the cold. And when I thought about that, 
it, it became obvious to me that he was saying that you have got, by pure luck, because you've been here for three winters, but you've got all the tools you need to make yours to make this your little niche. I had no filming experience, I'd never picked up a movie camera, so I didn't know anything at all about that, but he did seem to me that he was saying, you know other things that will not compensate, but they'll help you get there. So I filed that away, and David sailed away, and I was on base for another month or so, and I then left and went my way up through South America, and I was thinking all the time, how can I, you know, I've got really valuable connections there, but how can I, how can I use them, how can I you know, make the best of them. And then when I got back to UK, the British Antarctic Survey offered me another job. This was on another base, base called Halley, where there was no diving, no biologists, nothing. It was to be in charge of a building project, of all things. But I knew this base because I'd been there, and I knew that there was a colony of emperor penguins that were accessible through the winter. And emps are hard to get footage of because they do their breeding through the winter. So if you're gonna, so if you're gonna get a sequence with them, you have to commit to a huge amount of time in the Antarctic. But I was going down there anyway as this base commander. So I <clears throat> decided. So I wrote to the producer in the BBC and I said, "I'm, I'm going to the Antarctic. I'm going to take a camera, get some shots of emperor penguins. Would you? Are you interested?" And he said, "Well." I'd love to, I'd love to see it, but it's too late for my programme, but I'll spread the word around. So another producer got in touch with me, who was just starting his series, and he explained what he wanted about him, so I took the camera down and I managed to get it through the winter, and I took it back to him and showed him it, and he liked it, and asked me to do some research um, on, on other animals that he wanted to feature in his film. And when I looked at the, the list of animals that he wanted, birds it was actually, that he wanted doing, I said, you know, if you go back to Sydney for a whole summer, you'll get all this stuff in one place. Um, and he said, well, that's really interesting, but I haven't got the money to send my main cameraman down there for that amount of time, but would you be willing to do it? And he offered me precisely 12.5% of what this other boy was being offered, the good guy. But although it was a miserable rate of pay, I could see that if I did it and did a good enough job that when that series came out, half of the first programme would belong to me because the first half was all about Antarctic birds. So it meant that I met David in 81, Life of Birds came out in about 84, 85, and after that everybody knew who I was. An overnight sensation in three years, that kind of thing. You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, David and I got on really well. And again, that's another thing. You know, I was so lucky meeting that film crew, that, that four-person four team. Mm. Because as I went around with them, they were obviously having a great time. There was no egos. They were all collaborating over how to get the shot. They were all professionals. You know, one take, have we got it? Yeah, that's fine, let's move on. <laughs> since since getting into the business, I've met so many crews that if you worked with them, you would think these are the last sort of people that I want to work with <laughs> because they're arrogant, yeah. they're full of egos, and they don't know what the hell they're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, you know that's not many of them, but they range. People range that sort of range of abilities from the loveliness of David's bunch to the 
to the cluelessness of the other people. And I was lucky I met the creme de la creme right from the start. Yeah. I'm going to rattle off some of the programs you've been involved in. Mm-hmm. Blue Planet, Frozen Planet, Human Planet, Forces of Nature, and Expedition Iceberg. You were also a presenter on Expedition Iceberg, weren't you? Yeah, Expedition Iceberg was a good one, actually. It was amazing. You know, when you when you make a, a pure wildlife film, high-quality pure wildlife film like Blue Planet, Blue Planet had something like 420 filming days to make one programme. Right? So you multiply that up by an eight-part series. So that means there's about 3,200 filming days. And we actually had about 800 days to make it in, because two and a half years, something like that. So it meant that basically every day for 800 years, you've got to have two or three camera people somewhere in the world filming for you. And the rule of thumb used to be that if you put someone like me into the field for nine days... I'll bring a minute of useful film back. That's how you get, what, a 50-minute film? Nine times 50, 450, 450 filming days to make that programme. What's your proudest piece of work? The killer whales attacking the, the seals by washing them off the ice floes with their tail, waves made by their tail. That's a hard one to beat. Everyone wants to get behaviour that's never seen before, but when you have it involving two big, sexy, charismatic animals, i.e. the killer whales and the Weddell seals. And when you also have the chance to capture all the elements, not just the top side of the wave washing into the water, but then also the means to use a little pole cam and actually get down there in the water beside the killer whales, that, you know, makes for a a special sequence. And and it was great, the fact that that there were two of us there, myself and Doug, because we could... We could, you know, someone would be on the close-ups while somebody else was on the wide. So we've got this with masses of beautifully material that was that was a real joy, apparently, to cut. Mm. And I think that sequence, you know, does the whole thing justice. Uh, it's a well-constructed sequence. So there's that one, but also, you know, we filmed the polar bears trying to hunt belugas in a hole in the ice. That was pretty exciting. Not quite, didn't quite get it, in as much as the hunting was finished almost by the time we got there. You know, but now you also can't beat getting face-to-face with a big whale underwater. You know, I think, I think it's a sort of... It's hard to pick out one sequence or one day or... I, mean, I But overall, you know, the privilege that you feel from getting to share time in the genuine wild with genuinely wild animals who prior to that afternoon might never have known you, might might never have encountered humans before. The fact that you can have these encounters and everybody walks away at the end of the day nice and relaxed and happy, that's, that's the biggest sort of buzz you get. scariest thing um, which was when the walrus grabbed me I was snorkeling off the ice edge up in the high arctic and I was I was uh, I was trying to approach a group of birds in the water a group of guillemots that were diving and I would slowly go up to them and then get some shots as they disappeared down under the surface and then I would 
be treading water looking around for another bunch that I could maybe approach. And so I was treading water and suddenly something grabbed me around the thighs, just like I was, you know, just like they wrapped their arms around me. So as soon as this thing grabbed me, I just turned around and looked down and I could see a walrus head, kind of chest level. And I pushed the camera down on its head and it let go and swam away across the table like you to me and looked at me for a bit and then it disappeared and I headed back for the ice age. And what had happened was that this walrus had, had, had thought that I was a seal. Most of the time walrus feed by, they feed on clams and mussels in the mud down below. They've got very strong cheek muscles and they basically go nose down over the mud and sometimes they, they wave their flippers back and forward and that can you know, clear away some of the mud and they can actually grab the muscle. But sometimes they're, they've got such strong power that they just put their nose into the mud and, and suck the whole flesh out of the muscle into their mouths. So, um, but sometimes they prefer to go after seals and they go after seals that are sleeping because they're the ones that are easiest to catch, I guess. And when a seal goes to sleep, it just bobs up and down like a bottle, just with its nose sticking above the top. And the walrus will see these little bobbing noses as the walrus swims along on the top. And so it dives down, gets underneath the seal, comes up, grabs them and pulls it down. And this, I think, is what happened to me. I must have looked from underwater, maybe even from the top, like a big seal, um, just treading water floating around. And the seal walrus came and tried to grab me. Luckily, it let go when, um, when I pushed it on the head because if it had held on and sunk down a little bit, I was only snorkeling, so I had no air supply, and it was so out of the blue that I wouldn't have a chance to mm. take a breath. And when it got me down there, well, if it held me down, I would have drowned, or if it um, had, you know, sometimes they kill thing, animals by squeezing them, squeeze them really hard and basically break their rib cage and kill them that way. They can also <laughs> kill, them, kill them another way, which I had described to me by the Inuit. Um, they said that Sometimes when a walrus grabs a seal, they grab it high, they try to grab it high on the body, so they, they pin the seal's flippers to its side so it can't swim away. When they grab a walrus, when they grab a seal like that, that puts the head of the walrus up higher above the seal's head usually, and apparently the walrus leans over and puts his lips on the seal's head and uses the same suck as it would do with a, a muscle. Sucks his brain out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they anyone who described it said that you see the seal, you see the seal struggling a little bit, you see the walrus eye, and then it's it's like its head explodes. Mm. So, thank goodness that didn't happen to me. One thing about, about polar bears, for example, you know, polar bears eat people. Every year there are two or three folk killed in the Arctic, usually in the summer, because that's when polar bears are hungry, and usually by young bears, because there are certain hunting techniques for seals um, in the spring that a, that a polar bear uses. One of them is to, is to sniff out, with its keen sense of smell, sniff out where, where there's a young seal underneath the snow in these sort of little caves, layers. And to, to catch that seal, you'll see them very carefully walking and then they sniff around and they're, they're kind of trying to decide exactly where that seal is. And when they think they know where it is, they'll come up on their hind legs and then smash down on the snow with their forepaws, trying to smash their way through to the seal. Well, if you're a young bear, 
you don't have the weight of an old bear. You don't have the experience of an old bear. So your first season on your own on the ice is quite likely to be less successful. You know, So you end up hungry over the summer. So these hungry bears uh, that haven't experienced people before, they most sniff them out and folk get attacked on beaches and things like that. But almost always they get attacked partly because, you know, they're not being super aware. If you want to be safe from a polar bear, the best bet is to see it from a long way away. Because like all predators, um, not exclusively, but polar bears rely on surprise to get close. So if you can show that you see them, then, you know, they, their whole behavior changes. But the other thing is that you've got to, you've got to have the means of chasing them away without hurting them. It would be, it's no response at all to go out into bear country carrying a gun and thinking to yourself, if a bear gets too close, I'm going to shoot it. That's not it. It's more a case of, I don't want the bear to come close. I want to know where it is. And although I've got this gun, look, I've got these other two methods to, to chase it away. One might be bear spray, which is this pepper spray, which is very effective but over short distances. Or you can use cracker shells, which are explosive flare-type shells, which will go maybe 50 metres and go off with a big bang. And that will be enough to chase a bear away. So, you know, although these animals are, are dangerous, it's really our job never to let them be manifestly dangerous. Um, because you certainly don't want to get them close whereby you have to harm them in order to save yourself. You know, that's not morally good. Um, but there have been cases where I've certainly had a bear close enough to, to need the bear spray on it. And bear spray is, you know, most effective maybe over not much more than 15 metres. And 15 metres is way too close, you know, to really let a bear come at you. But this particular one was a classic case, you know, I was out with someone else and both of us got too interested in a bear over here and we didn't see that one over there and it just you know turned around and it was just a bit too close and it's interesting Inuit they they I was reminded of this because I was filming a bear initially and Andrew my guide beside me I couldn't help noticing that this bear was doing some interesting stuff down here and I was filming and I noticed Andrew was just point looking the other way. And, and I said to him, are you not interested in what's going on with this bear? And he said, well, it is interesting, but I always remember it's not the bear you can see that's going to get you. Mm -hmm. And, and you do, they, they were, they have, a, they have, if they want to get close to you, they hide behind icebergs. They might start over there, but they'll do a big circuit around the back of you and they'll slide into the water and you just see their nose going. You know, bears can smell seals from a mile away if it's a big, hefty male seal that's given off lots of smell. I've seen a seal over here and a bear away over there and I've seen the bear start to look up and, and it can't see the seal, but it can smell it. And, and I remember thinking, there's no way that that bear is reacting to this seal. But couldn't see any other seals. And you watch the bear and it disappears out of sight behind the berg. And then it'll slip into a little crack in the ice and it'll swim along a bit. There's even one bit that I knew was solid ice but thin. And I think the bear actually dived underneath the ice and popped it on. And you lose it and then you see a little bit here. And finally this bear just popped up right in front of the seal, came out of the water right in front of the seal, and the seal just managed to turn away and get in. But it, the bear had taken half an hour, and it was after that seal. Mm. 
And if that's a person and you're not paying attention to that and the bear's in the mood, you know, it, it, it will do that to you. Mm. They're amazing animals. They're really exciting animals to be with. I was um, living in a cabin with Jason. We were out in Con Carlos Land filming uh, for Planet Earth, filming polar bears coming out of their den. And we were we were flown in there by helicopter. And the Norwegian said it was a protected area. And he said, look, you want to be here for five weeks? Well, we'll fly you in and we'll fly you out. But no resupplies. So you've got to take everything you need for five weeks in this one trip. So we thought very carefully about weight. And we ended up with quite a lot of dried vegetables, dried peas in particular. And they can be pretty boring after a while. But I noticed when Jason made his peas, that his peas were were much fresher tasting than mine. And I accused him one night of basically bringing some herbs, you know, basil mint especially, nice minty taste bringing that over from back on Svalbard. He said, no, 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 this is a, an old explorer's recipe, he said, for making peas taste better. So I implored him to tell me the secret, but he wouldn't do it until the last night, until his last helping of minty peas. And he showed me what the secret was. He just went to his wash kit and he, basically the secret, basically the secret is about an inch of toothpaste Squeezed in amongst the peas. No way. Yeah, and that that gives it that fresh minty flavour. Uh, and huh? if you yeah, if you're stuck and you're serving dinner some night, try it. And if people huh? don't know, they're quite happy to eat. <laughs> they're, quite, they're quite happy to well, eat. My piece de resistance was a steak and kidney crumble. I basically put a crumble topping on top of a steak pie mix. Mm. I kept a lot of the sugar out of the out of the crumble mix because that would have done it but even that didn't go down that well really I wonder why I don't know I don't know what's wrong with that what's wrong <laughs> so food I would say I mean these days you know food can be I mean modern life on a base is t- totally unlike what we were as mm. I say it's almost like it's had a lot of the well I would say this but you know quite a lot of the character taken out of it because instead of wooden walls, you know, varnished and things, it's all, you know, just like the kind of walls you'd have in a hotel or things like that. And of course, there aren't the, um, you know, people now on bases usually have their own bedrooms. They might share a bedroom over summer um, because there's more scientists on base. But during the winter, everyone will have their own space. Whereas when I was down, um, you know, there were, we were sharing very primitive bunk rooms, um, which were called pit rooms. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they were just, I mean, it was just curtains, you know, in front of your bunk, so to speak, and some drawers underneath your clothes and that kind of thing. But no, very little privacy. And, and it used to be, I remember at Signy, it was right next to the lounge. So if there was a good going party going on, you were just getting bounced out of your bed until... There was a kind of rule of thumb that... that keep the noise down after two in the morning but you know it was still so often it was a case of better 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 join them than <laughs> lie in bed <laughs> 
the coldest temperature that, that you ever experienced? The coldest was just nudging minus 50, which was at Halley. Um, I spent a winter on Halley, which is the furthest south base, and that was down at 74 degrees south. So we used to have, we had a period of 100 days in the summer when the sun didn't go below the horizon, and 100 days in the winter when the sun didn't come above the top. And I remember there was one, one day when it dropped to minus 50. The thing when it gets that cold is it's usually flat calm. If it gets windy at all, then it's, you know, gets milder. But so minus 50 was, you know, was still chilly. If you stood outside and breathed hard uh, in your nose, you'd get frostbite up your nose because, mm. um, you know, so normally you just cover your face with, with a, a scarf and then breathe slowly. But the cold, that was the coldest degrees centigrade but I remember I was filming for a, a series in the Arctic and we were at um, Prudhoe Bay which is where they do all the oil exploration in Alaska so it was about minus 30 but there was about 25 knots of wind with it and that makes it the equivalent of about minus 95 or something like that because the wind chill factor just <laughs> sucks it away and and that was where you had to be really careful. The real danger of frostbite very, very quickly on your you know, your nose, your cheeks or your fingers. And of course when you're operating a camera, you can't always have as, you know, the dexterity if you've got a thick mitts on, you've got quite got the dexterity for focus pulling or changing aperture and things. So I was wearing a fairly thin pair of gloves and I remember I got what you'd call frost nip which is a sort of first stage before frostbite. Frostbite is, is really just, begins with the very tip of your very bits of skin getting frozen, and then it just goes deeper and deeper, and eventually it'll just, you know, your whole finger or end of your finger will just be effectively a block of ice, um, all frozen. And it's not painful. It's very easy for it to slip between getting cold and then suddenly it tingles a little bit and then it goes numb. And once it's gone numb, that's when... Basically, nerve endings are frozen. Um, and if you carry on, then it just gets deeper and deeper. Um, and you don't want to have that because it, the freezing process is like, you know, burst pipes. You know, water goes in cold and it freezes, the water expands, damages all the piping. Then when it thaws, that's when you get the leaks. Well, that's what happens in frostbite. Your f finger gets frozen, all the cells and tissues inside get expanded and burst. And then when it, you warm it up again, it just goes like mush and nothing works and that's when the end of your fingers and things go, you know, gangrene and stuff like this. And so, but I've never had it that bad. I just got a little bit of frost nip, which is basically where the, you know, the outer layer of the skin gets frozen and it's, it's, it's sore uh, and it comes up when you get blistered, but it's not nearly as serious as frostbite. So I got a frost nip at minus 90 odd or something like that. I know, it's inconceivable. Uh, you can't imagine. No. It's a killer. I mean, I'm sitting in here and my feet are absolutely bolt it. I'm <laughs> <laughs> some kind of wimp. <laughs> There's another thing, when Dave and I were diving out, out underneath the ice, and it was a very safe site, um, so we were just able to dive on our own without anybody on safety lines or anything like that. And it was about half a mile from base or so, and it was pretty cold, but we jumped on the snow machine, we went out, we jumped in the water, and we made our dive, and it was fine. And then we got out, and and we were just, in those days we used to dive with wetsuits, you know, special wetsuits. Anyway, we'd just gone out, ready to jump in the water, and we came out, 
and the snow machine wouldn't start, so we had to start walking back to base. Now, we're hand, we're togged out completely, everything, you know, has got the wetsuit round about it. So we've got the mitts on, and you would certainly never take your mitts off because you take them off, and within seconds they're going to freeze solid, and you'll never be able to pull them back on your hands because your hands are quite warm and it's all fine. So we're traipsing back, and there's a bit of a wind coming, and we're looking at each other, and I looked across at Dave, and I said, Dave, you're getting frost up on your nose. I can see a white bit on your nose. Normally you would, if you had gloves, you'd just slip your gloves out of your hand, put your hand over and just use the heat from your hand to warm your nose back up. Couldn't do that because I've got the mitts on. So I said, Dave, I'm I'm going to have to suck your nose, basically. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the only, that, you know, that, that'll get warmth back into your nose and you'll be okay. So we stopped and I sucked Dave's nose <laughs> and, until, until it was, you know, rosy pink again. And then we finished the last bit. Sounds romantic. So, very romantic, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah, Are you worried to return to certain places because they might have changed due to climate change? Yeah, I do worry about it. I've seen changes, I've been on the trips that I've been to to film we've sometimes we've either gone back to places where i worked it's interesting i got my first break in filming really by going to this place called halley and filming the emperor penguins through the winter and about five or six years ago um the ice that where my where that colony was and where that colony had been for at least 60 years the ice broke up early because of a storm and no birds have gone back there to breed. So that year, all the chicks must have got lost because the ice broke, the climate change broke. Well, I say climate change. The problem is that, you know, at the front of these ice shelves, an ice shelf is, is unique to Antarctica. Well, there's one or two tiny ice shelves in the Arctic, but ice shelves are a matter of Antarctica. And what an ice shelf is really, if you, you think about Antarctica as a big dome, um, with the ice is thickest in the middle and um, ice isn't a solid ice is just a very very thick liquid so the ice at the dome very slowly begins to spread to the edge of the, the continent and when it gets to the mountains it splits into glaciers which flow through between the mountains and then on the downward side, downhill side of the mountains the glaciers join up again and they carry on spreading and when they get to the sea some of these glaciers are so big that they just carry on pushing out to sea and some of them can be so vast that they become ice shelves, giant floating pieces of glacier. Now, when I say giant, the biggest ice shelf is the Ross Ice Shelf, and the Ross Ice Shelf is the same size as France. Wow. So you've got these giant floating ice shelves, and out at the seaward edge of these ice shelves, that's where the emperor penguins have their colonies. But that edge, that outer seaward edge of the ice shelf is quite dynamic. There are icebergs carving off, breaking off every year. So the shape of the front of the ice shelf changes all the time. And those emperor penguins that I filmed at Halley, had, they've been a colony there for 50, 60 years because the shape of the front of the ice shelf had been such that the ice formed there and it was stable enough for the emperor penguins to have their whole year. But... In, in, in naturally, without climate change happening, icebergs do break off the front of the brunt. And one broke off, and the following year, 
the shape and orientation of the front of the ice, of the ice shelf wasn't as stable and the ice broke up. Emperor Penguin Colony was unsuccessful. And it's quite possible that the Emperor Penguins sort of realised that something had shifted and basically they haven't bred there since. Um, they haven't gone extinct. They've probably gone and found another bit of the ice shelves handy. But I did think, you know, if that breaking was caused by climate change, then, you know, that that's the end of my wee colony. That, mm. that Nobody can go there and get the break that I had. You know, mm. that sort of yeah. thing. You know, I've seen it in the you know, distribution of penguins. We filmed at one colony of a daily. It's called Dream Island for Life in the Freezer, 1992. Went back to do something on the same colony at, uh, in 2008 for life. And the colony was about 10% of the size. And uh, the scientist who was studying it theorised that basically there just weren't the same number of chicks being raised at that colony. And that must mean the weather hadn't gone particularly bad. It was that there wasn't the food for the adults to go and forage and come back. So why would the food move? Well, the food is pelagic. It shifts with the currents. It depends where the plankton food is. And there's enough change in the currents and the fine distribution of the currents in the Antarctic to think that you know, you only have to get the, the, the food being pushed 10 miles further away and that takes it outside the foraging range of the penguins. So for whatever reason, the dailies had plummeted and the more northern species of penguins like Gen 2's chin straps, they were moving in to take over the colony site. But they were only able to take to move in because they need warmer summers and that's what they're getting. They're getting mm. warmer summers. So... As I say, I mean, the Antarctic is, is changing on a big scale, on a small scale, clumps of grass. There's only one flowering plant in the Antarctic, and that's a kind of grass. And that grass, you're finding that grass further north now than you used to because it's milder, it's able to go mm. further north. I remember um, at Signy, um, and I was out one day. It was cold, it was in the winter, but the Adelie penguins were just starting to come back from the rooker to the rookeries and there was nice big long lines of them snaking across the ice and there was one bit where you know they were they were leaving lovely little perfect footprints in the snow and I was just kind of getting into position to try to get some pictures of this which was quite unusual I wanted and it was cold and windy and I was I had kind of something around my mouth to warm up my breath but I was you know having to do a lot of sniffing you know, because of my nose was running. And I was just lining up the thing like this down, and I and I put the camera down here to double-check the, the settings, shutter speed, this and that. And a drop came out of my nose, and it went right down the shutter button. Perfect. And because the camera was minus 30, because it was cold, it been outside of there, it just went bump, it just froze solid. And I couldn't press the shutter. My shutter was snot frozen, basically. <laughs> and and I couldn't. I mean, I thought, well, I will I try and you know lick it or something. You know, but, <laughs> no, no. But you you don't put cold. I mean, I've seen someone in a tent again at cold temperatures. You know, they were writing up their field notes at night. And it was cold in the tent because we weren't burning much fuel. So it was about minus twenty in the tent. And we're all cooled up tight. And without thinking, he he put his pencil in his mouth. Now, the graphite lead in his pencil was super cold. And his pencil stuck to his tongue. Mm. Just like, you know, your finger. And he didn't, without thinking, he, he just pulled it away. And 
he just took a tiny wee chunk, just the size of the graphite, straight out of his tongue. And it was incredibly painful. So I didn't want to start, you know, the second thing in this thing. So I just had to kind of go back to base because suddenly my camera didn't work. <laughs> I only had one camera. Ruined by a bit of bogey. I'm still frustrated. I still think back to the shots that, that I saw would, would have yeah. been lovely and I didn't get because I basically had a snotful. You know, when sometimes when it's very cold, if you, if you don't do a lot of sniffing, you get the stuff that's coming out of your nose freezes and you get a snotical hanging down from your nose. Yes. <laughs> we were looking for polar bear dens, polar bears coming out of their den. And the thing is that you can you can find a valley or valleys that look perfect for a, for a polar bear to den in. You know they're not far from the sea, fairly steep slope, lots of snow at the top, snow depth at the top where the bear could get dug into the den. But until the bear actually breaks out of the den, you have no idea it's in there. So the secret, if you want to get on a bear den, going to give you the most amount of time that the bear's hanging around, you want to find them as soon as they've opened. So that means going round the bear, going round the likely areas, looking every day, see if there's a new hole has opened up. So Jason and I had separated because we were trying to look at a lot of dens. And he said, right, I'll take the ones on this side of the valley, you go and check out the other ones. So we were separated. So there I was in my snow machine and I, I stopped and I was looking through the bins and things and I thought, there's a new hole up there. You know, that looks pretty good, I wonder. So I thought, I'll go up and have a closer look. So I left the snow machine and started walking. It was maybe about four or five hundred yards from, from the snow machine up to where I would get a better look at the den through the binoculars. And foolishly, I stepped away from the thing, left the flare gun and bear spray and things on the snow machine. So I was about halfway, 200 yards from the snow machine, 200 yards from the den, walking and looking, and I became aware of this thing out here. And I, and I looked across, and there was a bear about 50 yards away, just kind of walking and looking across at me. And I don't know, maybe it was heading towards the den, I don't know, but, you know, 50 yards is too close when you've got no bear spray and no flare gun and nothing like that. And, and I, so I thought, what am I going to do? So I, I just started to walk in a curve, you know, to take myself back towards the snow machine. And this bear stopped. And then it started, it didn't walk in the curve and it didn't walk towards the hole. It started walking back, you know, kind of towards me, but not in a hurry or anything. So it ended up that I was a hundred yards from the snow machine, but the bear was now behind me. And that wasn't a good place. But I, I didn't look out with it. I didn't want to start to break or, or run faster or get because it seems as though the bear was quite laid back. So I did remember that what you're what you're supposed to do is is you leave something of yourself in the snow for the bear to sniff at and investigate. So I peeled off one of my outer um boot uh, outer gloves and, and without really stopping I just dropped it in the snow beside me and carried on walking. And the bear stopped at the glove. And I remember it stopped and it kind of pawed it and it lifted up, up a little bit with its mouth and then dropped it and then turned around and walked away. And that was fine. But that was a sort of daft situation that could have got bad, mm. you know. And it was my fault. I just stepped away. I should never have stepped away 
from the skidoo without taking the bear spray and things yeah. with me. Um, but it just goes to show you how I don't know where the bear came from. I, mean, I didn't yeah. stop to look at its footprints. All I know is that suddenly it was out at an unsafe distance, just walking parallel to me. So, you know, I think I think when you're wildlife filming, you do you are given the privilege of of getting into close to nature, literally closer than than many people would get the chance to do and maybe closer than some people would would choose to do but i think i think it's all about having the experience of the animal and the conditions you know if you don't know what you're doing you'll get frostbitten dead easy at mm. minus 40 and that kind of thing mm. but if you do know what you're doing then you can relax and take the right clothing etc et mm. and similarly you know if you're near a whale for example and you've been having a good time with it and it's pretty laid back um but then it it behavior changes and instead of being happy to lie there in the water and look at you it turns tail on and maybe gives you a couple of sideways swishes with its tail normally a, you know a whale beats its tail up and down for thrust but when they're getting annoyed with each other or when they're fighting over females then they'll turn sideways or no slash it sideways so if a whale starts doing that to you then that's a pretty good sign that it was fine at the start, but now it needs a bit of peace and quiet left on its own, so I'll just back off. Very few, the only animals will attack using the element of surprise, but they will often defend their territory or want you away by changing their behaviour. And it's if you ignore that behaviour, then they will, the mm. threat will turn into an attack. Mm. So it's about recognising when its behaviour changes and either having knowing what the new behaviour means or, you know, etc. Uh, that you just think, okay, fine, to you know, back off. But as I say, it's only, and that's why if you if you do have an animal that's stalking up on you, if you notice it and look at smack in the eye, most of the time it loses that element of surprise. It'll stop and it'll just go away. Very few of them will, will carry on with the attack knowing that they've lost the element of surprise. Yeah. Cool. That's a wee bit of advice for anybody that stumbles well, across. Well, that might help people if they quote a polar bear comes up the high yeah. street. Or <laughs> One of the, the features on the podcast, the main feature on the podcast, is a challenge that I set every guest. Oh, right. And I call it the shite bag if you didn't challenge. All right? Yeah. It's completely your choice whether you take the challenge, but if you don't take the challenge, you will be considered a shite bag. Dog. Hobson's <laughs> <laughs> choice, okay. if you ask me. <laughs> well, I've created a script, and there's two characters in the script. Uh -huh. I will play one of the characters, and you play the other one. Okay. One of them is David Attenborough, and the other is Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin? Yes. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Steve Irwin. So you've written a script between yep. Steve Irwin yep. and David Attenborough. Yeah, and I've created... This will be interesting. Yes, and I've created a, an animal as well uh -huh. that they are, uh, they are covering. Yeah, okay. All right. They're watching. Uh-huh. They are okay. watching an animal, yeah. So you've written your side of the script. No, I've, I've written both sides oh, of the both script. Oh, both of the side, okay. I have, so okay. would you like David Attenborough uh -huh. or would you like Steve Irwin? I want Steve Irwin. Because an Australian accent's the easiest one. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it, Steve was just OTT or everything. Yes, he was. Yeah. 
I mean, to be, I mean, I have some respect. Well, a wee bit. A wee bit. You know, well, I, I never got into Steve. You know, telling you how dangerous the snake was as he picks it up. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that dangerous, Steve. Just leave it. You know, yeah. and half the time, you know, of course they're going to bite you because you're yeah. annoying them. You daft yeah. sod. And. <laughs> I don't know all the circumstances, but I think to get stung by a stingray, you have to be poking that stingray. And I think, you know, I can see what's happened. Steve's in the water, he's being filmed, he's got a cameraman, you know, all around him, and he sees this stingray and he kind of gets it up and wants it to show its sting. And the stingray starts to swim away and Steve's following it fairly close, maybe on top of it, and there's a camera person in front or something causes the stingray to suddenly turn direction or change direction. Suddenly it sees Steve as a threat or just piss off and comes up and hope he gets it. And... You don't get, the only time you get stung by a stingray is if you step on one by mistake. Right. And I just can't see that happening with Steve. So, kind of his own fault, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> you can put that out if you want. But, you know, I mean, he was, you know, he didn't get, well, he, he was just always, to my mind, seemed to be chancing it with the animals. Yes, he so, was. Unless he made an exception in the case of that stingray. You know, it was unfortunate and yeah. got him. Right, what have we Are got? you ready? Alright. Shite bag if you didn't, Here we are in Pittencreef Park in search of the famous beast. Crocky dive! Bleeding cold in here, mate. The Dunfermline Death Badger lurks in the bushes. Oh, David, watch out for that little bugger. They love their tucker. He eyes his prey, moving slowly through the shadows. David, I can't decide whether it'll be a, an Australian or a South African. <laughs> <laughs> or some other different accent, mate. Anyway, look... We better watch out. You don't want to get tagged by that bloke. By that. <laughs> Hold on, David. You better watch out. You don't want to get tagged by that bloke. The Dunfermline Death Badger sinks its teeth into the Rosythe Acid Squirrel. Oh, check it out. Wow, he's... Wow, Christ, David. He's gorgeous. Mate, cover. Or whatever it is. There you go. <laughs> I can hardly see for the cocks getting in my eyes, mate. I don't know, I think... Steve, I hope you're not up there listening to what I said before you. Well, we're now on nearly 20 past six, Doug, so I'm going to let you get on because well, I know you're a busy no, it's been a pleasure listening and talking to you, Liam, and I know that I took up some time at the start. Um, I'm going now to, or very shortly, to do a tech check at the Gillespie Hall because I'm doing this talk mm. for my sister um, in a week or so's time so we're going to take check with that just now I just want to thank you for your time and if people wanted to attend one of your talks or your tour how would they go about that? The best, the simplest way is if you go on dougallen.com, my website, then there is a poster on that. There's also one pinned to the top of my Twitter page, which is Doug Allen Camera. Yeah, there's still a few venues to go. Uh, I think there's uh, eight of them between now and the end of November. Uh, might come back and do another one you know, next year, who knows. But it's always good. You know, I like talking to the public. 
And I didn't do a Dunfermline venue this year because uh, for various reasons we were going to go to the Alhambra, but they had Ranulf Fiennes, who's a particularly eminent polar explorer. They had him on early in November and maybe they thought one polar explorer in November is enough. So we'll come back and, and do the other one. But on the other hand, I could just come back to you and just rab it on for another couple of hours. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.